Hello, and welcome to Different Conversations. My name is Brad Elliott, and every week I'm joined by a different colleague from the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, University of Westminster. This week's podcast does have a little bit of explicit language in it, so fair warning as we get into the topics. This week, I'm also joined by my colleague, Dr. Victoria Brooks, Senior Lecturer in Law. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, great, thank you, and you? You know what? It's going great. It's been a bit of a busy morning. You know, already I've been running around in circles. We've got everything plugged in. We're here. Time to talk to you. And I'm happy about that. Great. I know. Tell me about it. So uh, you are a senior lecturer in law in the Westminster Law School. And uh, when people think of law and academia, they probably think of uh, dusty, gray wigs, boring old men, perhaps very kind of stereotypical pictures. That's not exactly your research area, is it? Um, no, it definitely isn't. Um, and I completely agree. It's a bit of a shock um, to find myself and I'm sure for anybody to find me um, in a law school. But um, yes, yeah, so I, I work with um, sexuality um, and ethics um, and law in a kind of bigger sense and in the sense that I look at uh, laws that deal with and regulate sexuality but also how sexuality pushes against those laws and how law creates our sexual identities as well um, and that also feeds into another aspect of my research which looks at consent um, but also looks at ethics um, so I'm looking at sexual ethics so how um, our everyday interactions are influenced by the law and also how our everyday interactions challenge the law as well. Okay, so that's like, as a life scientist, incredibly far out of my area of expertise. So, for example, everyday interactions are affected by the law. How, what do you mean by that? What's examples of that? Um, so, for instance, um, how our sexual, sexual behaviour unfolds. So if we take the example for, of consent, for instance, that's mm -hmm. usually one that's quite easy to connect to. Um, so consent talks about how um, someone can only consent if they are free to consent um, and that they have the capacity to consent. Um, so that idea feeds its way into the way that we have sex with people and our experience of sexuality. Um, so one idea about this is that it's, it's a very vague conception of, of freedom. So what means that we feel free in a situation such that we can give consent? And also there's an idea that consent sets quite a low bar for sexual interaction because you're looking at agreement and it ought to be perhaps something more than that. So that's one way in which law, so a set of rules that's really kind of, that we understand to be what we should be doing, feeds into the way that we interact with one another. Um, it feeds into the way we interact with one another in lots of other ways too. So, um, for instance, um, I mean, a, a big example would be um, about sexual orientation. So for a long time, uh, it was illegal to be gay. Um, it still is in lots of different parts of the world. Um, and this is something that feeds its way into our um, vaguer sense of ethics and morality. And it's the standard um, that we hold each other to. Um, here, of course, it's, it's a bit better. Um, but it's that sense that, that that sense of right and wrong and how it then feeds into our experience of sexuality. Yeah, that's a, a lot wrapped up into a few sentences there. 
it must be quite a difficult topic to uh, research and to work with uh, consent. And this can be quite personal and emotive mm-hmm. topics as opposed to say what's written on a piece of paper, which seems quite clear versus I'm guessing the real world work becomes very difficult very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. The reality is incredibly messy. Um, and that's, I guess, what I'm trying to work with is, is, is reality. So a lot of my research is about trying to understand an experience of sexuality. I make my work quite personal because I, I know that I experience the world in a particular way and I can't speak for a lot of other experiences. But at least through my experience, I can communicate ways in which the law um, might oppress me or might contain me or might make my sexuality a different experience to what I want it to be. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely personal um, and definitely very messy. And I guess the challenge for me and other researchers working with sexuality and with law um, is is kind of finding a, finding a way through all of that. <laughs> makes it sound so. Um, I don't know. I don't even know what it makes it sound like. I was going to say it makes it sound easy. No, it's not right. It makes it sound hard. No, that's not right. Just difficult. I think different, if you will, like a different conversation, perhaps. But yeah a cliche uh and so is that what your book is about perhaps because you have a, a book out called fucking law the search for sexual ethics mm-hmm. yeah that's that's exactly it so that was one instance of me trying to find my way through all of this mess um so the book is very personal but also i'm trying to connect the personal with the legal with the political um as we've been told to do um and that's my story of doing that. So it's, it's an ethnographic project, which means I've been going out into the field. Um, and that particular project was a project at a nude sex beach in um, the south of France. Um, so that was um, a project where I, I went and uh, undertook various observations. And I also recorded my experience of being there at the time. So I was able to connect that experience um, with my experience of of my sexual identity um, and see how those, those two things interact and how my experience challenges the law and also ethical frameworks too. Which is there's a lot thing. of questions coming out of this. I'm, I'm, and so forgive my ignorance. Um, I know what a nude beach is. Yeah. A nude sex beach. <laughs> yeah. so I'm guessing that's what the name suggests where this is a, a beach where people go to have sex. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's it's a bit, it's, um, I mean, anyone who's particularly interested, do read the book because you will find out. But um, this particular beach is in um, just um, near Toulon um, or near Béziers, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. And it's called Capt Agd. And um, it's, it's massive. Um, so during July, August, in normal circumstances, not in the times of pandemic, obviously, <laughs> I expect it's extremely quiet at the moment. Um, it would welcome sort of 30,000, 40,000 people. Um, some people just go there for the experience of naturism, nudism and so on. Um, but there is a section of the beach where people go to have sex in public with, with other people. Um, so that's where I went uh, during, during July. Mm-hmm. Sounds sandy, for lack of a better word. Like yeah, that. it was very sandy, yeah. Um, and very hot, um, because South France obviously gets very hot at this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, so if your researchers are observational, uh, mm-hmm. for lack of a better way of putting this, again, I'm coming at this from my, my boring, cold-hearted scientist way of putting it, 
in physics, they have this thing called observer effect or observer bias, where you being there observing is changing the nature of that thing. But that must be a, a massive issue here. Um, you know, I, I love that, that idea. And it is something that I actually ended up putting in my PhD thesis about the mm -hmm. observance of sexuality. Um, but I, I was covert observing so um i was but one uh, person on that beach um, <laughs> with my notebook um it would have been very difficult to have known that i was a researcher um and obviously that being said me being there would have affected what's mm. going on and what's going on would affect me and that was a big part of what i was doing and a big part of what's in the book um, is about this idea in research that you are meant to be, and also in law, um, that you are meant to be objective and distanced mm -hmm. from your area of study. Um, and in sexuality work, my argument is that that's just not possible. It, it is pointless to pretend that you are going to be removed from this subject matter and that this subject matter is going to be removed from you. Mm. Um, and a root of a lot of the I guess oppression um, and control of, of people to, to a negative effect is due to that pretense about objectivity. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, there's that idea that you, you can't be present within a situation without mm -hmm. affecting it. And then um, I don't want to, to bore the world with intricacies of our life and dealing with ethics committees, but mm. um, I've had my fair share of uh, conversations with them. And I've sat on the other side of a committee as well and um, grilled researchers coming in. So you went to see an ethics committee and said, I'm going to go to a beach in the south of France where people have sex and it, it is or isn't against the law in France. I'm not sure. We'll come back to that perhaps. It isn't. Um, it isn't. So it's a perfectly, uh, so it's an illegal place. Well, of, well, it's a question. It's complicated because it I guess it is against the law to be technically yep. naked and having sex in public. But it's one of these things that ethically or tacitly it's it's allowed to happen mm -hmm. so there's security there and so on obviously everyone knows it's happening it's part of it's an important part of the french economy mm -hmm. um and tourism and so on um so it's a, in that funny gray area where yes illegal but obviously it's allowed to happen because yeah like you say it's not a uh, a small thing you mentioned tens of thousands of people at the peak of summer so this is a yep. major tourist destination yeah Okay, so, so there's this major tourist destination in the south of France that's in a grey area of the law, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to secretly watch people having sex in public. Now, the ethics mm. committee must have loved this. Yeah, they did. Um, and, yeah, I, I obviously loved my exchanges with them. Um, <laughs> I, in, in seriousness, no, that it, it, was, it was an extremely productive exchange. Mm -hmm. um, initially, my application was refused. Um, mm -hmm. But I had a long list of questions to, to deal with. And I've got to say, some of the questions are quite telling and, and also quite amusing in some respects. Um, I think there was a lot of concern about me as a woman going there. Mm -hmm. um, concerns that might not necessarily have been raised had I been a man. I was going to ask, do you think that'd be different if I had gone and done it? I, I, think, I think there would have been still concern. Mm -hmm. I think they would have been articulated differently. Um, so there's a worry about my personal safety, my physical safety, going there as a woman, um, where people would actively be searching for sexual encounter. There was a concern about me being able to, to obviously deal with that. Um, 
and then there was also a concern about privacy so there was <laughs> so they asked me if i was going to follow people in, into caves with a specific comment which was an interesting one um, are there caves no <laughs> okay just checking in you know because <laughs> i'm like i'm so um, far out of my league here there's a beach there might be caves there might be a cliff you know people might like privacy in their public affair. i don't know <laughs> Yeah, Sorry, carry on. Uh, I mean, I mean that's that's all totally fine. And if people want to be private, then obviously they would go and do what they yep. want to do. And I, I, I've got no interest in following somebody who doesn't want to be observed. Um, so I'm just going to sit there and just do my thing. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, if I'm in danger, I'm going to be getting myself out of danger. That's that's how it works. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting exchange. Eventually, I did get approval because I dealt with all the queries. Um, uh, and it was okay, and I'm really grateful for that. I think it, there's something interesting going on, though, in relation to sexuality work and ethics committees. I'm not the only one who's um, gone through a bit of a gone through a bit of an ethical storm with a committee. Um, yeah. And it's not just sexuality work; it could be anything to do with that that might provoke some kind of reaction. Like recently, I. Have, I'm doing a new project on sex clubs, on queer sex clubs, mm -hmm. um, and I had quite an interesting interaction with the ethics committee again. Um, but there's also stories from other people doing work on, I don't know, um, in relation to drugs or refugees, um, discourse on race and politics, um, and all of these areas that are really extremely urgent to research, but also are quite controversial uh, as concerned to the institution are areas that provoke a really intense ethical response uh, which is because sex quite... does provoke responses doesn't it yeah um, it both with intermingled ethics and moral responses here but i mean without being pedantic they're not quite the same thing uh, but mm -hmm. it does re re provoke a massive response from committees doesn't it and you've experienced this in the past then by the sound of it yeah, it does. And I think that there's also this idea that ethics committees are are somehow, because obviously as a life scientist, you'll know that the ethical frameworks have their origin in the sciences. And you're then trying to apply this framework to humanities and to work like sexuality work. And there's a bit of a problem because they don't really connect. And there's, there's assumptions that are made that don't fit. Um, which means leads to decisions, I think, in certain projects that, that aren't aren't quite right, and you're getting research that perhaps doesn't get carried out, or worse, in a way, well, not worse, but equally as bad, is research that's not well supported. Um, so, if you have a more sort of a, a conversational, supportive approach to research research ethics, then you might have the situation where somebody's undertaking a better project because they're better supported. Yeah, because I'm guessing, uh, say, my approach to a research study with what we'd call uh, informed consent and pages of paperwork to fill out and legal documents to uh, mm -hmm. make sure people were happy being involved, I'm guessing there wasn't a spot when you were walking up to people and you to sign clipboards and then say, okay, now act natural. That wasn't part of it, I'm guessing. Well, you can't, can you? It, it's ludicrous. And, of course, as a researcher, you're going to be conducting research sensibly and ethically mm -hmm. and in and because of you're a researcher with integrity you're going to be going into the field and dealing with people sensibly but part of that is not having reams of paperwork that you're trying to get people to sign because they're just not going to trust you they're not going to be interested in talking to you and that's particularly when you're dealing 
it wasn't applicable in my case, but if you're dealing with people who are vulnerable um, uh, or people who are in a difficult situation, they are not going to be filled with confidence if they're presented with, with as you say, big reams of paper. Of course, informed consent needs to be part of the exchange still. Of course, people need to consent to being researched. Of course, we need to make sure researchers have integrity, but there needs to be a way of doing that that doesn't insist on us having a big file with us all the time. Um, and yeah, and, and on a really bureaucratic kind of system. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to compare and contrast, um, and I don't want to go too far off topic, but um, during my time on a committee, I've spent three years on, on our one. Um, the hardest approval we ever gave was, it was probably a three-way tie. And one of them was someone who was insisting on not taking informed consent because their research was very conversational. And I, I do, I see your problems, but um, I would also argue with you perhaps another day about um, researchers, of course, being ethical and responsible and having integrity. I've, I think our history is listed with plenty of researchers who didn't, who thought they were acting in the best interest and maybe retrospectively weren't. But um, but it must have been an interesting one, I've got to admit, it must have been a fun conversation to have. Um, and so is that, that story, I guess, that experience is covered in this book, uh, the one we just mentioned, Fucking Law, The Search for Sexual Ethics. And then um, you kind of alluded to it, and we've talked about it before we started this interview, so I wanted to raise it. You've just been given, um, given excuse me, better language, you've just been awarded a substantial research grant to research into research ethics. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So tell so, me about this. Yeah, so it's very exciting news. Um, I've only just found out, but it's a grant from the AHRC, a networking grant, um, and it will allow myself and my co-investigator from the University of Manchester, uh, we are going to basically bring together experiences of researchers uh, like me and like him who do research in the field that is considered to be risky um, or challenging in some way and obviously through that we're going to be pulling together experiences of research ethics processes and frameworks um, so and the aim of this is really to just understand what some of the problems are that are frequently encountered and how ethics frameworks might be rethought um, and how processes might be rethought in order to facilitate better, more supportive processes pro processes for researchers, but also better outcomes in terms of research and how it benefits communities. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's basically laying the groundwork for that. Um, and it's a conversation really that hasn't been had before, um, not in, in that, that way, kind of pulling together with disciplines from across the humanities. Um, so yeah, I'm really, really excited about it um, and excited about what we will find. Um, yeah. So that sounds really interesting. And I guess, so we've, uh, you're linking back to that point we made earlier about um, a research ethics being rooted in the life sciences and in, uh, uh, for people who aren't aware of the, the reams of paperwork I do have filed away in locked cabinets with double secured doors and all sorts of I think it's 25 years storage of paperwork now for some of my studies um, we're up to. So that, it's something I've never come across before, but I think it makes sense, this idea that maybe what works for one field, mine, for example, might not work for yours or for others. But it's interesting to come at it from the idea that this is a preventing 
research happening it's preventing progress forward if you will that's interesting mm. yeah and this is this is the idea i'm coming from really is that there is a there is this worry that it's preventing research and we've got to remember that experiences are going to be so different across the broad uh, across the board in terms of researchers because researchers are very different as people and their challenges are going to be very different um but particularly looking at junior researchers um, their challenges are going to be much more because they're going to be much more reliant on, uh, on their networks. Um, I was lucky to have very strong networks throughout Westminster. I've been really well supported. Um, but what if I hadn't been, or I've been in an environment where I hadn't been supported, then my research might not have gone ahead. Um, so yeah, it's looking at trying to ensure that research does go ahead, um, but also that it goes ahead ethically, but mm, ethically course, in yeah. the sense of supportively, um, and ethically in the true sense rather than what I would call the moral sense of you know this this idea that comes down from the sky but it's more about how the research that comes out that benefits everybody um, and that ensures everybody is supported. Yeah coming into this podcast I have to admit my research and my plan for today was to talk about your work and ethics and oh sorry and ethics and consent and, and your writings but this is interesting for people that perhaps um, haven't uh, dealt with an academic world before and I come to this from outside of university environments uh, ethics committees are a type of god to us in the work they do aren't they and that uh, mm. we write an ethics application and we write exactly what we're going to do we may not go outside that boundary and their word is the word of law to us that what they say we can and can't do so it's it's very interesting this idea that um, I think is very interesting to me anyway perhaps maybe because it's a major part of my life Mm -hmm. about um, how ethics committees work and unashamedly that was why I joined one I wanted to be on board it to understand it better yeah um, uh, that's really that's really interesting and so when's this research kicking off in some well, post-covid world perhaps <laughs> yeah that's a good question um, I'm not sure yet I expect it won't be until the new year but that's that's to be decided um, because the research involves, of course, because it's a network, it involves a lot of contact. Um, it means that we want people to be together and discussing ideas. Um, that's It's supposed to be a really collaborative project because we want to understand more about people's experiences. Um, that's the whole point of it. So, yeah, we might have to wait a little bit, but we'll mm -hmm. see. It should be an interesting outcome, hopefully. I look forward to hearing about it. And so perhaps keeping you busy between uh, now and the start of that project, I hear you have a new book you're working on, just in your yes. spare time, of course, because, you know, we have so much spare time. So much. Um, yeah, I have a new book um, that's coming out. Well, actually, I'm not sure when it's coming out, but um, it's, I'm due to submit the manuscript in, in April next year. Uh, end of April um, and it's with Bloomsbury um, and it's called Mistress Ethics the, on the Virtues of Sexual Kindness. Um, so it's building on my previous book um, and some newer research um, that's looking particularly at the role um, and the ethics um, of, of the mistress um, and because she's such a um, an enigmatic figure um, somebody who can be radically demonized, um, but at the same time, someone who's really enticing and exciting, um, but also somebody who goes through a lot of hardship and, and difficulty and somebody who's in direct confrontation with, with some of the systems 
the major systems that underpin our whole relationship and sexuality hierarchy um, and monogamy and so on. Um, so I'm really interested in her story. Um, and this is what this book is about. Um, it's about trying to understand her and her position and what we can learn about human sexuality from her. So is, will this be similarly observational in that you'll be um, seeking out and finding mistresses and talking to them, people who are in affairs perhaps, or is that, I'd what like is the to, approach I, here? I'd very much like to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and perhaps I would in the future, but this one is more of a, I guess what you would call a philosophical study of the okay. mistress, although I want it to be really accessible. Um, it's very much going to be marketed to a broader audience rather than a strictly academic audience, as I really want people to, lots of people to think about these things and lots of people to read this work. Um, it is going to draw on some personal experiences. It's going to draw on examples of mistresses from literature, um, from popular culture, historical examples. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, all kinds of, of different mistresses um, and people who have been mistresses at different points in their lives. Um, yeah, so it, it's really a start of a project as well, this book. Um, do you think you'll be tying sorry do you think you'll be tying yeah. it into your academic life as well you talked about this is very public facing mm -hmm. uh would there be research in parallel you think yeah i expect so um i mean it's uh, it's still drawing on academic work it's drawing mm -hmm. on theory and and so on but i'm trying to package it in, a, in an accessible way and, and hopefully an enjoyable way that someone might might enjoy reading because often i guess a criticism of academic work is that it might not be particularly pleasant to read <laughs> i want to try and uh, make that not true <laughs> this book you've clearly read some of my papers obviously <laughs> can be dry at times my own which is <laughs> yeah it's, it's very true that sometimes in academia we do that don't we we write academically and then some academics write public and that's fantastic you're an example of that uh, but i really like the idea and something i strive to do of crossing them back and forth which is something i don't think any of us do enough of uh, hence we have conversations like this that we put out there and we um, do these things and then this is a personal question just for me, but how much work is it going to be to write a book like this, uh, you think? Because you're talking about having it done quite soon in my mind. Yeah, um, don't remind me. Um, <laughs> Sorry yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is quite soon. Um, and yeah, it is, it's a lot of work, but I've got to say I've, I've made a start, obviously, thankfully. Um, I really enjoy writing books. Um, I'm really enjoying writing this one. And yes, it will be a lot of work. Um, it just means that I need to just focus. Um, and the way I work is that I like to have big blocks of time. Often I take myself away somewhere if that's possible um, and isolate myself and, and write away really. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite a bit of work. Um, but yeah, it's enjoyable, this one. So um, next time I'm struggling to write something, I'm just going to remember your advice, which is just focus. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, just that easy. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's not because sometimes I find myself just staring out of the window because I can't think of what to write. And it's, and sometimes you just think, oh, I just, I'm just not in the mood for this. I just cannot do this. And that's okay. Just walk away from it, go for a walk, do something else. Um, but yeah, it's hard, but yeah.
I think we all have a very, um, I guess, um, turbulent relationship with writing, don't we, as academics? It's... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a funny thing. I, at no point at all did I, up until I became a well-published author, did I expect to become a published author. It drives me, like, it drives me crazy that that is where I became. I am an illiterate, failing kid who can't write very well, and somehow I write professionally for a living. It drives me, I just, it's bizarre to me that this has happened in our lives. But here we are. And um, yeah, I was doing okay at it. I like to remind ourselves every now and then. Yes, I think that's important. Yeah. We're very good at imposter syndrome in our field, which is a topic for another day, perhaps. But it's good to remind ourselves we are succeeding. That's a big topic. Yeah. And getting rewarded as well with research grants. Congratulations again. Thank you. So um, I did want to ask you, speaking of your writings, um, some shorter form pieces you've written. You wrote a piece for the conversation recently. Uh, mm-hmm. Isolation could improve how we think about and navigate sex and relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of what of uh, a lot of what I've kind of read in the in the public media so far during this lockdown. The only big news story to have at the moment, isn't it? Is COVID nineteen and lockdown. But a lot of what I've read about it in uh, newspapers and such has been talking about how negative an influence lockdown can be on couples and on relationships and strain and stress. Mm-hmm. And you've come at this from quite a positive angle. Uh, haven't you? So tell us a bit perhaps about this article and what your kind of central theme was here. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a lot of negative effects. Um, but I guess it's also trying to find the possibilities and the and what's revealed to us in a set of circumstances that is, is so unusual. And it's it's never happened before. And I don't want to use that horrible word unprecedented. <laughs> but it is Um, and this means that we're going to gain insights about our behavior and about our desires Um, and I think that isolation um, is bound to show that because and it's going to mean that we adapt it's going to show ways that we adapt and sexuality is something I guess that is so rooted in in ideas of touch and in and in seeing people and being with people mm-hmm. that it's I guess this moment is is really it shows a lot about how we're going to adapt something like that um, and I think it also shows some of the problems with sexuality too um, so part of what I talk about is how um, we're going to find different ways of experiencing sexuality so that's obviously going to be virtually um, and that's something I mentioned in the piece which is that there's a, been a huge rise um, in virtual dating but also from my own perspective and this is not something I wrote about in the article because it only arose a bit later is that there's now a rise in online sex clubs um, so there's um, an organization who, which is bringing together lots of, um, of strippers together um, and they've produced what is essentially a queer strip club, which is online. And it happens every few weeks. Um, so this is something that's really radical and really exciting. Um, it's an organisation called Cybertees. And, and, and that's something that just would not, not have been around before this situation. Um, and I guess there's also this idea that it's going to improve accessibility and it's just going to shift our understandings of what sexuality is um, and the possibilities that are within it as well. Um, so, yeah, of course, it's negative in the sense that we're going to be cut off. There are huge mental health implications to that. Um, but it also pushes us to experience sexuality differently. 
Unfortunately, that's about all we have time for this week. But thank you, Victoria, for walking us through your research, through ethics, sexuality, the law, and for putting up with me as we took a few detours there off topic. But I guess that's kind of the point of different conversations after all. If you've enjoyed this podcast, feel free to check out some of our others or subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube or if you're listening to the audio version on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, whichever audio channel you have, feel free to subscribe and keep up with new releases as they come out. My name's Brad Elliott, and this has been Different Conversations.